Good morning. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Uh, we are finishing up what is called the High Priestly Prayer, what might be called the Real Lord's Prayer. This is Jesus praying. And in, in finishing this section, we're also finishing up the entire Upper Room Discourse, which runs from chapter 13 through chapter 17. And it, it, this is truly one of the most uh, profound and, and really beautiful passages of Scripture. Thank you for studying it with me. Um, in this final section of John 17, we we see uh, God's strong hand and His care for His children. Uh, we see His intention to bless us and His purposes in doing so. Uh, the themes we've seen before of Christ in us and our unity with Him, these are repeated and expounded on. And, and what I find in this section is is the, the progress of the believer's life laid out for us in the prayer of Jesus. Jesus, he prays for sanctification, and we'll talk about that. And he talks about unity, both the unity of believers with each other and the unity of believers with himself. And, and he talks about love, and he talks about the glories to come. This passage makes us hungry for heaven. So I'm going to read it. And then we'll pray and study it. And starting in verse 17 of John 17, Jesus prays, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you, have, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus, just as you've, you prayed this um, to your Father in the hearing of the disciples, and now you've allowed us to hear it again, you've allowed us to listen in on, on, uh, on your prayer life, let it change us. God, let, let our understanding be deep in these words. Let, um, we, we, we know that, that your words will not return to you void, uh, and how much more these words to your Father. These will be answered. These will be heard. We thank you for loving us like this and loving us through this prayer. Give us understanding of spiritual things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we started last week. Uh, on the section of this prayer that is for the disciples. Verses 1 through 5, the week before, uh, verses 1 through 5 contained Jesus' prayers for himself. 
verse 6 began his prayer for the disciples. And as they heard these prayers, they would have taken great comfort in the things their Lord was asking for, the things their Lord was saying. Remember, they have already heard Jesus say about them, they are yours and you gave them to me. Uh, they had heard Jesus say, they have kept my word. They heard Jesus say, I, have I am glorified in them. And this is all really good news. And the good news continues in the things that Jesus asks for. And we, we can take great courage in the things that Jesus requests because we know that he doesn't ask without hope. He doesn't ask without confidence. He doesn't um, just kind of dip his toe in the water, so to speak, and say, well, maybe if you, if you could, maybe just sanctify them with a little bit of truth. We know that as Jesus addresses the Father, he does so with full confidence and assurance that he is heard and that what he asks for will be given to him. And so verse 17 begins with this request, this confident request that ought to shine a light over every day of your life. Jesus prays for the disciples, sanctify them. Uh, now we need to talk about this concept of sanctification a little bit. Being people who like clean-cut categories and neat, tidy boxes to put things in, we generally understand sanctification as the process of becoming holy, the process of becoming more like Jesus and less like who we were before Jesus saved us, right? We say justification is when we are saved, that is being freed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is the life of the saved, where we are growing and maturing from glory to glory and being freed from the power of sin. And, and then finally, we look forward to glorification. That's when we are in heaven, freed from all the effects of sin. These are helpful categories, and they are accurate, if not complete, uh, decision uh, definitions Excuse me, of those terms. Sanctification is a process, but that's not all it is. Sanctification is also a completed, done deal. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, addressing them as those who are sanctified. In, uh, excuse me, I'll, I'll read it to you. To you. Um, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then again in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You were sanctified. It's, it's been done. You've already been sanctified. But twice in Hebrews, the author speaks of believers as those who are being sanctified. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, and then again in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. So you have to see it both ways. It is a process, and it is something that has already been done for you. You have been sanctified, and you are being sanctified sanctified. Now, in this way, it is a perfect way to understand our salvation itself. Now, of course, we speak of salvation as a completed task rather than a process. You are saved or you aren't. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. But salvation is final. Jesus has paid it all. There's no such thing as halfway. But the Bible also talks about being saved. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, Paul to the Corinthians. Again, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, 
It is the power of God. He includes himself, Paul, who you think is pretty saved. I mean, he shares his testimony three times in the book of Acts, or the, it's recorded for us three times in the book of Acts, and, uh, you know, it, it seems like he wasn't saved, and then when Jesus saved him, he got saved. And, and Paul is pretty saved, but when he writes to the Corinthians, he includes himself in this category of those who are being saved. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15, Paul writes again, he says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So we need both of these ideas that believers are sanctified and that we are being sanctified. You are saved and you are being saved. Which one does Jesus mean here? He says, sanctify them, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. What, what is he talking about? Well, maybe both, um, but mostly the, the, the second way. Uh, let, let's look at the meaning of the word itself. The word literally means to set apart. Now, the disciples have been set apart, but Jesus is praying to the Father saying, separate them, continue to separate them, elevate them, make them holy, sanctify them, consecrate them. The implication of the word sanctify is that the thing or person that is sanctified is taken from a place that is common or corrupt and then transferred to a place of honor, holiness, and sometimes usefulness. It's actually similar to the word hallowed. We are essentially saying sanctified be your name when we pray to the, the Our Father. We're asking God, don't let your name be regarded as a common thing. Don't let it in any way be tarnished or thought of lightly. Let your name, Father, be elevated, honored, hallowed, consecrated, sanctified. When the word is applied to things of earth, like you, the word consecrated is a good synonym. Priests are consecrated and you are part of a kingdom of priests a royal priesthood. The temple is consecrated, and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, praying to the Father, he says, consecrate them, set them apart for your use, promote them from the place of fearful disciple to that of bold apostle. And, and that will be what happens, of course. We know the testimonies of, of some of these men. These men were set apart. They were consecrated, and this was God's doing. We know that because of, because it was, if it was up to them, they would have failed. We know that it was God who consecrated, sanctified, set them apart. Now, as we've seen, sanctification, a done deal, is also a process. And that, too, is God's doing. Each of these men and every saint that would follow them would come into a process, a development of holiness. You grow. God is transforming you from glory to glory. You are being changed into the image of Jesus. You are growing into the head. Even Paul said, I have not yet attained. And he's pretty saved. But he knew he was getting closer, and so are you. But how great an encouragement that we, we know through the prayers of Jesus that this type of sanctification is also in the hands of God and not only your responsibility. Please notice that Jesus is not talking to the disciples when he prays these things. He does not tell them, the disciples in this moment, be ye sanctified or else. Now that be holy as I am holy, that is a command given to God's people in Leviticus. That is a command given to the church, be holy. But it's not 
just something that is directed towards you. It's not something that is left um, as your responsibility without the assistance of the God who is holy. How great an encouragement that we know through the prayers of Jesus that this type of sanctification is in the hands of God. You have responsibility, of course, but you are not alone. You are not left orphans. The Father himself will see to it that you grow into holiness. And if you be sanctified, if you will be consecrated, it will be because the Father has answered the prayers of his Son when he asked, Sanctify them. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The means for the sanctification is truth. And that truth is the word of God. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, The more truth you believe, the more sanctified you will be. The operation of truth upon the mind is to separate a man from the world unto the service of God. Please do not underestimate the power of God's word, the Holy Scriptures, to have a lasting, changing effect on your life. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We understand this to mean, in part, sanctify them by your word. It is through the word of God, setting ourselves before it, hiding it in our hearts, living by it, that we participate with God in the glorious work of salvation that he is doing in our very souls. These are deep mysteries. James 1.21 outlines this participation. He says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. That would be your part in sanctification. And receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Receiving the word, his powerful sanctifying word, is done in conjunction with laying aside all wickedness. The psalmist prayed, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Not sinning, sinning less, is part of sanctification. And Jesus prays for the disciples that the word would have its full effect. Let's, uh, let's read 18 and 19 together. He says, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. They are set apart from the world, but they are sent back into the world. Let's do... Uh, let, well, I already read these. Jesus drawing parallels between his work and the disciples' work would be another comfort to these discouraged men, that they are sent. He was sent first. They are following their master. They are going to be sent to work, put on the mission field, commissioned and entrusted. And this idea of service is sandwiched between two verses about sanctification. Verse 17, we read, sanctify them. Verse 19, Jesus says, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified. Now, when Jesus uses the word sanctified to refer himself, he reveals that this word must mean more than just leaving sins behind. You know he's not talking about personal holiness or leaving of sin, he is sinless and doesn't have need of sanctification in that way. But he is saying, I am elevating myself, I am exalting myself, I am setting myself apart from that which is common, that they might be set apart as well. And in the process of this setting apart, again, this, uh, this idea of service is sandwiched between the idea of sanctification. You know, we have this this common phrase, which is good to remind ourselves of, is there 
but for the grace of God go I. We usually use that kind of phrase when, when beholding uh, the worst of sins or the corruption that sin has caused, and we say, I am capable of doing that sin. It is important to recognize the fallenness of your nature and that you are capable of worse things than, the, than you have done. But that same phrase can be kind of brought to the next level by saying there, for the grace of God, go I. Meaning after you've been separated from the fallen world, from the sinful world, from the, the corruption that you, you have the potential to participate in and even make worse, God then sends you back into a corrupted world as sheep among wolves for the grace of God. And while Jesus says, sanctify them, make them holy, make them pure, make them consecrated, he also says, I'm sending them into the world which is not sanctified, which is not consecrated, which is not holy. Now, I've talked about sanctification as a lifting up from what is common into the realm of the holy. And that is truly what God has done for you. But Jesus also talks about lifting, when he talks about lifting up and being lifted up, we see this as terrible consequences. When Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up in John chapter 3, he's talking about the cross. And it is at the cross where Jesus would be lifted up, set apart, even sanctified. The sacrificial lamb is holy. The blood is holy. The altar is holy. This is sanctifying. Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, he understood this phrase, I sanctify myself, to mean I offer myself in sacrifice. And Jesus saying, I send them into the world, this is also a sanctifying and a sacrifice. It's a call to service and a call to holiness, uh, but as we've already seen in our study in John, to follow him is a call to come and die. The disciples would also be set apart in this manner. They would be lifted up, some on crosses, and their journey towards holiness took this path because they were following their leader. They were set apart for great work and great sacrifice, and Jesus showed them the way. Let's not separate. Don't try to separate holiness from this kind of thing, this kind of sacrificial living. Let's not leave consecration in a place where it refers only to nice, clean, shiny things behind glass. The holy things are consecrated, sanctified by blood. Now in verse 20, the prayer shifts. We've been anticipating verse 20 for the past few weeks because verse 20 is where we are shown that Jesus was not concerned only about the 11 men in the room, but also for every saint who would ever live. He is concerned about you. And he still is. He was concerned when he prayed this, and he still is concerned about you. He brings us into the folds of this prayer and places us in the same camp with those in the room, the ones who sanctifying he was praying for. So we'll read all the way through verse 23, uh, starting in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. 
Uh, now, if you are a believer, you have believed through the words of the apostles, even if you didn't know it. This is your heritage. The gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection is the message of the apostles. They were entrusted with it as you are. And it's a great heritage to be a part of. Now, look at what Christ prays for. We've, we've talked about this, this kind of deep unity uh, before in John. It is, it is deep. It's mysterious. It's a spiritual thing that Jesus is talking about. He prays that they, and that's all of you, would be one. One with each other and then one with him. Um, and that those two kinds of unity are equally baffling. This is a crazy kind of prayer. Let's start with the unity with each other. He says that they would be one. The plural would be singular. That they would be one. Uh, while unity with God is certainly hard for us even to imagine, we don't even have a framework for that kind of thing, unity with each other, unity with other believers, is hard to stomach. Uh, <laughs> this is something we, we see play out in Scripture and in modern churches and in ancient churches and everything in between. A large part of 1 Corinthians is concerned with exactly this issue, primarily about how the church did not want to walk in unity. There was competition, there was backbiting, there was disunity in every way. And Paul has to remind the church that the church is, as a whole is exactly that. It's, it's whole. We are one body made up of many members. The other epistles share the same truth, sometimes speaking of the unity between Jew and Gentile, or in the case of, the he of Hebrews, the shared pain felt by those who are persecuted and those who are free. They are united in those experiences. We're, we're told that we are several stones making up one building, a temple. We are one body, one temple. And this is true because God has made it true. God has made us one. So what is Jesus praying for then? He's praying that God would do exactly what God has done and made all believers one. But he's also praying that we would act like it. He's asking that we would realize it, live like it, live like the people in, in, uh, in your church matter to you, like family or like your own self. Part of this is considering others as better than yourself, serving each other. Uh, but I believe there's even more to it than that. The church is not just a close-knit group of people. What Jesus prays for is not just the unity of a family or the unity of a brotherhood of some kind. He prays that we would be one as God is one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Once again, these are the deep things of God. Christian unity is intended to follow the pattern of the unity that exists within the Godhead. Just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one God, so we are to be one. Our unity with each other should be God-like. But this verse says something else. It's not just comparing our unity over here to, to God's unity over here and saying that there are some similarities and that they should relate to one another. No, it's saying that our unity as believers, the church's unity, must exist within the unity of God. We are in Him. Our unity is in Christ. Now, honestly, this makes the idea of unity with each other somewhat easier. 
You are not supposed to have unity with the other people in the church because you like the same things, necessarily. Because you have the same tastes and opinions. Or even because you spend all your time together. That's not what's implied here. You are united with the other people in this, this room because you all are in Christ. Which means the direction you must travel in order to achieve unity with your brothers and sisters is not primarily towards them, but towards God. And the implications are the result of that closeness with God is closeness with your brother. The soul of the Christian will recognize a brother in the Lord because both souls are oriented towards the Most High God. I'm sure many of you have experienced this. The unity between saints is the result of our unity with God, and both kinds of unity are a gift, an answer to Jesus' prayers for you. Jesus prays that they may be one in us. We are together in Christ, unified in Christ. We are a family in Christ. We are one body in Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit in Christ. Now we can talk about this both in terms of an objective that we ought to reach, as church unity is hard and worth working towards, but also as a done deal, as, an, as something that God has already accomplished, just like sanctification, because this is indeed part of your sanctification. I think it is necessary to see that church unity the unity of believers, is a finished work before we get to work in making it a current reality. Whenever we talk about Christian unity, I always bring up something from Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, said in his book Life Together, which is very thin and I'd highly recommend it. Uh, he said, Christian unity is not an ideal to be reached, but a divine reality. That's kind of a paraphrase. But in other words, we, we are united in Christ, whether you like it or not. If you are a Christian, then you are in Christ, and so is every other believer making you one with them, whether or not you even like them. Whether or not you experience this reality on a day-to-day -day basis, you have been united to Christ. And by default, you are united with every other Christian who is His. This is why the best way to resolve or improve relationships, marriages, whatever, any kind of relationship within the church is for both parties to seek the Lord with all their hearts. Because by loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength, you will be led to love your neighbor as yourself. Now this mysterious unity, like our salvation itself, like sanctification, is something that is done and something that we are experiencing and growing in. It is something uh, conversational, where God acts and then we respond. And even in our response, Jesus is present and active. In verse 21, we are in him. In verse 23, it says, he is in us. He is accomplishing all of these things in us. And Paul writes about this next level truth uh, in, in Ephesians, praying for the Ephesians that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Peter says even that we are partakers of the divine nature. Rejoice in these mysteries. Between verse 
21 and 23, we have verse 22 showing another mystery. It says, And the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Now, just like there's you know different ways to talk about sanctification and different ways to talk about unity, there's different ways of talking about glory as well. And we'll, we'll get two kinds of glory in this passage, one here and then one again in verse 24. When we started this chapter, we saw that there was a prayer that only Jesus can pray. Jesus can pray and you can't. Father, glorify your Son. And now we, we don't pray for God to glorify us. We don't see the apostles do that. We don't see the church do that. But we see here that Jesus does pray that the glory that the Father has given him would also be given to us. This does not mean we are glorified in the sense that Christ is glorified, though we will be glorified according to Romans 8, verse 17, and Romans 8, verse 30. What this means is that he will give us his glory as a gift. It is still his glory, but he allows us to handle holy things. He has given us his glory in his presence. He has given us his glory in his spirit that we receive, who we participate with, in the kingdom of God. He has given us his glory in the revelation of himself. He has given us his glory by being our leader, our priest, our shepherd. Now Paul describes it like this in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, Paul says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has given us the knowledge of his glory. So in one sense, that is what Jesus is asking for. He's saying, I'm giving them, revealing to them my glory. Jesus is giving you an awareness of his glory. But there is more. In, there's another, another layer. There's another way in which we do share with a kind of the glory that Jesus had in in his life and that we will have in our lives. Just not the kind of glory that you think of or, or probably want. In John 12, 23, when Jesus says, my soul is troubled, and we see that he is, he is um, very aware of the suffering that he is about to undergo. He is concerned for his passion, his crucifixion. He says, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Glorified. The cross was the glory of Christ. And each one of his disciples are told to take up the cross and follow him. There is glory in imitating Christ, even and especially in his sufferings. In taking the humble path and becoming lowly and suffering for the sake of Christ, this is the glory that is for us on this side of eternity. And in imitating Christ in these things, in his suffering, we are also walking with him into the beautiful things. In verse 23, read that again. It says, And that the world may know that you have sent me and, and have loved them as you have loved me. The way the disciples lived in sharing in Christ's painful glory and in becoming aware of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, this would be a testimony to the world, not just of how the Father sent the Son, but also how God loves his people. A life of walking with Jesus, following hard after Jesus, living like you are sent by Jesus. This kind of life is a declaration to the world that God has visited his people. The Father has sent the Son. And that God loves his people. And we are his people. 
The disciples would take comfort in these words, seeing that they were loved by the Father with the same love. You have loved them as you have loved me. Now, I'm sure it was evident in all of Christ's prayers that he was praying from a place of deep, deep love. I, I don't imagine that any of Christ's prayers were, you know, seemed dry and dusty uh, to the disciples. Uh, I think it was evident that when Jesus prayed, they could tell he was talking to his father. His, his, his father who loved him. His father who he loved. And they could tell. I, I'm sure that there was love there between them that was beyond the realm of creation itself. They knew. And now Jesus is praying in their hearing for them to, to listen in and learn from. Father, let the world know just how much I love these people. Let them know how much you love these people. Jesus loves you in a way that shows his love to the world. This is the way of God. He loves with trajectory. He loves in a direction. He loves... Um, the Father loves the Son in a way that gives love to the disciples. Uh, the Father loves the church in a way that shows his love to the world. He unites us with him so that we can experience fellowship with each other. He makes us one together in him to show God to the lost, to the world. He loves you evangelistically, not just for your soul, but for every soul that you've ever met. He finds the lost and then blesses them in order to reach the lost. This has been the story since Abraham. Now read through uh, to the end of the chapter and you'll see more of these same truths expounded and kind of wrapped up. And in verses 24 through 26, we see the, the, the next kind of glory hinted at. Not the cross of this world, but the resurrection in heaven. We see the whole prayer summed up with the repeated theme that God has sent his son, that those he loves have received him, and this deep mystery of the unity of believers with God. It's all here, so we'll read starting in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. At the beginning of this long speech in the Upper Room Discourse, um, the, the speech that we're ending here with this prayer, Jesus told the disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In this prayer, he is directing his attention to the Father, saying, I'm coming home. In verse 5, he prayed, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, that with, with the glory which I had with you before the world was, now he's saying, let me bring my friends. He's already said, I'm going to share my glory with them. And, and we do get to behold a portion of it and experience the, the harsh glory of the cross in this life and the glories that follow. But, but this is a bigger request. Jesus is saying, let my friends come to where I am going and be with me forever. He's talking about heaven. He's saying, let them be where I am so that they can see the glory of our eternal love Christians are people 
who look forward to heaven. And in the meantime, they change the world. There is no way to read John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 without developing this longing in your heart for your real home. Now, the, the tragic parts of the upper room discourse, and there is a tragedy here. The Gospel of John might be described as a tragedy. But it, it reminds you that this isn't your destination. That the world is a bleak, dark place, and that our faith is not strong. The way the cold drives you to the fire, this, this world's bleak, dismal setting drives you to heaven's warmth. But there's more than a deep-seated longing. There's an invitation and there's a promise. And Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he prays here, bring them to where I am. This does more than whet the appetite for heaven. It fills the heart with hope that we, actual, we will actually be there soon. Listen to me when I say this. You will be in heaven soon. In a relatively short amount of time, that's not some weird threat or prophecy, that's just math. And you've heard me suggest this before, but it's always a good idea to recalibrate your heart with this equation. Do the math. How many years do you think you have left? How long are you going to live on this earth? 90 years? If you're lucky, 80, 90, 100, 110? And it doesn't matter. Be optimistic. Take the big number if you want. Now subtract your age. In that amount of time, or less, Jesus' prayer here will be fully answered. You will be with him where he is. He will bring you home. Christians are people who look forward to heaven, but in the meantime, they change the world. Read verses 25 and 26 again. He says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. The distinction has been made in this passage between the world and the believer. This prayer is focused in on the church, not the world, but it cannot be forgotten or avoided. The church exists in part for the world. Jesus loves us to declare his love, in order to declare his love. He has saved us in order to save more. The entire prayer, and so really the entire upper room discourse, ends with this statement of purpose. And it's what I want you to hold close to yourself. Christ prays for you. Jesus, your great high priest, prays for you. Read it. That the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ in you, the hope of glory, in order that the glory and the goodness of God might be declared on this earth. With that hope, with the hope of heaven, and the awareness that you've been set apart, consecrated, for a purpose, let that sink into your heart. And we'll close in prayer. Jesus, you are good to pray for us. You are kind to pray for us like this. And we rejoice that you are not only good, but you are great. You, you are able to accomplish these things with your words. With word, you caused light to shine out of the darkness. You created the universe, and you hold it together by the word of your power. And as your word now 
sanctifies us. We have full assurance and confidence that this sanctification will be completed, that you will finish the good work that you've begun, not only in us, but in this world that you died to save. Here we are. Send us. Let your love abide in us, that we may show the love of God to this world. In Jesus' name, amen.